Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode number 72 is Sarah McQuaid, very interesting multinational guitarist and songwriter, born in Spain, grew up in the U.S., Moved to Ireland, is now in England. She's recorded five solo albums since 1997. Some deeply drenched in folk music, both from the UK and the US. But her latest is all original material. 2018's If We Dig Any Deeper, It Could Get Dangerous. And you're listening right now to The Day of Wrath, that day from that album. We're going to be talking about its title track, and then a piano tune from that album, The Silence Above Us. And looking back to 2012's The Plum Tree and the Rose album, The song is called Hardwick's Lofty Towers. And we'll conclude by listening to a song called Yellowstone from the 2015 album Walking Into White. For more information, check out sarahmcquade.com. For more on this podcast, visit nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please contribute at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have, as we agreed, uh, played a little of The Day of Wrath That Day. From the new album, um, we're going to get very quickly to If We Dig Any Deeper, It Could Get Dangerous, the title track. But can you tell me a little about, I think I read somewhere that you were, you're, you kind of started this as a guitar virtuoso type and sort of the songwriting came later or started as a folk singer. What is your overall approach here that you're doing these instrumentals, but yet you're also maintaining the full songwriting thing at this point? Can you say a little about your progression over your career here just to orient folks? When I first started writing songs and, and, and writing tunes when I was a teenager, when I was like 14, 15, I was a big Joni Mitchell fan, ah. but I was also a big fan of all the Wyndham Hill guitarists, people like Michael Hedges and Willie Ackerman and Alex Degrassi and people like that. So I was always right alongside writing songs and trying to be Joni Mitchell. I was also always writing instrumentals and trying to be Michael Hedges. So the two kind of developed together while I was still in my teens. But then when I was 17, I went off to study in France for a year, and I kind of fell backwards into doing traditional Irish music, which is something I'd never intended. And it took me a long time then to get back onto the track of actually writing songs and and writing guitar instrumentals. It's only really in the last couple of albums that I've found my feet again as a songwriter, partly in because of the the Mama album that I made with Zoe, this um, former pop star who I met when I moved to Cornwall. She kind of got me back into songwriting again. Then I guess I just started getting a little bit more adventurous on the guitar and and trying to do more more interesting stuff instrumentally, especially once Michael Chapman loaned me the electric. I mean, that's where the day of wrath that day came from. That was just me playing with an electric guitar and a delay pedal and seeing what sounds I could make. All right, well, let's briefly introduce the title track. Give us the short story, and then we'll play it, and then we'll talk more in depth about it. Yeah, I mean, as as you've probably heard me say before, like the, the way the title track happened was that my son was as you know, little boys will 
typically do was going off and digging a big hole in the back garden. And I didn't realize how big the hole was getting until I went out one day to look at it and realized that he was down, you know, over his head underground and digging this, this massive hole. And I just heard, I said to him, I, I, you know, if, if we dig any deeper, it could get dangerous. And, you know, sometimes I hear myself say things and all these other sort of potential kind of metaphorical meanings surface. So as soon as I heard myself say that, I thought, all right, there's a song. I got to write a song with that title. And it also occurred to me right about the same time that it would be a nice title track for an album. So almost as soon as I'd written the song, actually before I'd even written the song, I was already thinking of it, of it as being the title track for the album. And I guess I was kind of conscious of that when I was writing the song. So I was trying to get all these kind of themes in there about the apocalypse and about the environment and stuff like that. There's a boy in the garden with a shovel and a spade. He's gonna dig himself a I say I know you're having fun I don't want to make a fuss But if you dig any deeper It could get Thank you. 
So one of the things I was thinking as I was going through this was, it's a dark song, but how dark do you let it get? <laughs> that it's not Tom Waits. Your voice is still very pretty, very pure. You know, you've got some, there's some, uh, on Michael Chapman's electric slide guitar, there's some grit there. And when the trumpet comes in, I in fact thought it was harmonica at first, because just, I guess, what, it's a muted trumpet at first, at least? No, I think he's just playing a normal trumpet without a muted in it. The last three albums that I've made all had three different trumpet players on them. So I was really glad. I remember um, when I uh, I was doing a gig in Cornwall and this guy came up to do kind of a little slot at the end of the night. Or, or no, it was, a, it was a singer-songwriter came up to do the end of the night and this guy was playing trumpet with her. And I thought, great, trumpet player, excellent. Next time I make an album and I ran over to him and said, hey, can you give me your email address and phone and stuff like that? Because I'm going to make a new album at some point and I always like to have a trumpet on it. And he was great. He was, I, I loved what he did there. Well, and certainly the solo sounds, you know, actually trumpet-like, but that initial riff, that... That is still him, right? That's not harmonica. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like that. Yeah, so it's got this old-timey American. I mean, it's interesting. You, you were saying that you played Irish folk music, but then on your second album, you you know do stuff like In the Pines, In the Pines, Where the Sun, never, that, all this Appalachian stuff. So I definitely see that both those traditions have a strong like country death song kind of tradition in here, which I'm sort of seeing here. But on the other hand, it's a song about your son. Is there a, a name in folk music for that trick to what you're doing where boy in the garden with shovel and spade, biggest hole ever made? In other words, you've already said the lyrics sort of longer. And then to get out of the verse, let's say him again shorter. Like that sort of undermines anything that would make the song too evil because <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that came from. It just felt right when I was writing it. And I don't know, is there a name for it? I, and I guess I was thinking of it and trying to remember. It seems to me I wrote the lyrics of that track before I had the melody. I don't have a standard way of working. Sometimes the melody comes first. Sometimes the guitar riff comes first. Sometimes the lyrics come first. Sometimes I do the whole thing and decide to change either the lyrics or the melody or whatever. But um, I'm pretty sure when I wrote those, I think I was trying to emphasize the imagery. I, I'm big into imagery in my songwriting. I always like to try and get a strong image in the listener's mind and then see what that image can suggest metaphorically. That's always what I'm aiming for. And can you say a little about the structure that we're establishing the riff here it could go on for a while. Like when you have this kind of very listenable riff, it could just be an instrumental for a while. You get over it pretty quickly. So you, you get to it. It's a fairly compact. It's less than four minutes, which for something this slow is, I think, an accomplishment. <laughs> the bridge itself is very concise. And it really is just a matter of stop for a second to put your shovel away. Time to call it a day. Like, as you say, the, the music is doing what you're saying, more or less. We're, we're kind of taking a little break and then, then you get back into this thing, which then could go on for quite a long time, but it's pretty restrained that you've got trumpet at your disposal. You could have him fly off into some <laughs> twisted dirge or something like that. But no, it seems to focus on the build in the drums. I don't know, can you say a little about sort of the dynamics of the song and how, how you thought this through? Was a lot of this a matter of decisions made during the particular production, during the recording, or, or did you have this pretty much planned out? 
Well, one thing I definitely had planned out pretty early on in the songwriting process was that me being the trio of female backing singers, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and I remember when I figured out that I could possibly do that and do the dig, dig, dig thing. And I really loved that, you know, because I love that whole Motown sound. And along with being a big Joni Mitchell fan, I was also a big Carol King fan. So having those backing vocals come in, I think that's the idea I had first. And things like the drum and the trumpet kind of naturally emerged out of that. But when I'm doing the song live now in concert, we use um, loops so that I can still do the backing vocals. So since I don't have the trumpet now when I'm live in concert, the, the instrumental break, if you like, consists of me building up those three layers of backing vocals, you know, starting by doing the dig, 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 and then dig, 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 and then the dig, dig, you know, so I've got the three-part harmony and build that up in layers and then come back and sing the last verse with the backing vocals underneath it. And it's, it's really fun. It's, it's a song I love doing live. I was, I was forced in prepping for this to go back and listen to Peter Gabriel's Digging in the Dirt by comparison, because <laughs> it was you know suggested in an obvious way, but also just thinking about how dirty do you let this get, that it's still very kind of Baroque and restrained, whereas in the Peter Gabriel song, he also is trying to channel this Motown thing, but it's a little more, you know, just has more of that, that Tom Waits grit to it, and then it opens up into, you know, has a little more contrast opening up into the chorus, whereas this is very measured, again, even the bridge, when it's making this gesture, is still... Uh, I don't know. There's something that it's the apocalypse has not yet come in this song. <laughs> it's just a, yeah. it's a distant <laughs> foreboding. If the dig 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 is the most apocalyptic we get, that's that's very restrained. I mean, I was also consciously trying to keep the song short. That was one thing. Um, prior to my fourth album, I was kind of in the habit of writing five and six minute songs. And then with the fourth album, Walking Into White, I worked with my cousin, Adam Pierce, as producer. Adam has a fantastic band called Mice Parade, which is an anagram of Adam Pierce. It's just him basically playing a load of different instruments and various guests. And he's, he's an amazing musician, an amazing writer. But one thing he made me do on that album, Walking Into White, is just cut, 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 cut on the songs. He questioned every single line of every verse of every song going, hey, hang on, why are you repeating that line? You've, you've sung the line once, you don't need to repeat it. And why is that third verse in there? You don't say anything in the third verse that you haven't already said in the second verse, so ditch it. And with the new album, I didn't have Adam there, but I had Adam's voice uh-huh. in my head <laughs> throughout the songwriting process going, what would Adam say you know, <laughs> about this song? Would Adam want me to have that line in there? If not, maybe I should ditch it. And I was really conscious of that, of trying to keep things concise and trying to have every word and every line serve a purpose. I think that's a really good thing to do. There's a phrase they have in um, in writing, in kind of literary writing. They say, kill your darlings. You know, which is anytime you write something and you think, eh, that was a good piece of writing and you feel really smug and really proud of it, that's probably a sign that it shouldn't be in there and you probably need to get rid of it because it's probably in there just to serve your ego and you shouldn't have anything in there to serve your ego. You should just be writing to communicate. And if it doesn't communicate, if it doesn't do its job, then it shouldn't be in there. I think that's a really good kind of maxim to operate by as a songwriter. So I guess I was interpreting the longer song as what instrumentalists especially often do in terms of entering a sort of zen-like state. This intro riff in this song is engrossing enough and I can imagine fun to play enough that you could just 
bend over that thing and just live in it for 10 minutes, probably without it being, without it feeling boring at all for, to, to you as the player. <laughs> we kind of did that in the fade out to break me down. I was lucky enough to have a fantastic bass player playing Rickenbacker uh, electric bass. And, and I was lucky enough to have Michael Chapman there with his slide guitar. And so I've never, ever, ever on any of my albums before have had a fade out. I've always kind of been in the habit of just finishing songs and, and not having fade outs. But for that track, for Break Me Down, we decided to have a fade out and we just told Samuel, the bass player, to kind of have fun with it and let loose. And Michael did the same and it was, it was really fun. And I was just there doing my repeated riff over and over and over again. I'm just doing that little climb down riff on Michael's electric. I was going to say on my electric guitar, on Michael's electric guitar, which I was playing. And, and that was, that was really fun too. And I, I kind of do a little bit of that live too. Obviously, I don't have Michael or the bass player. But I wig out a little bit more on the electric guitar myself when I do that track live, and and that is fun. Even in the parallel lyrics, like between the beginning and the end, where you do that repeating thing, which is a fundamentally sort of sing-songing thing, which is it's strange to say, given that you're playing comparatively jazzy Joni Mitchell chords over that, you know, as compared to the intro. But the fact that you're doing Boy in the Garden, Shovel and Spade, so again, this sounds kind of like a kid song, but Fire and Flood, Trembling Ground, Pale Horse, Trumpets, like, that that's parallel to the childlike lyrics at the beginning or so something, that you're bringing up the, the Armageddon in, a, in an almost playful way. I like to do that. And again, I've got to mention Break Me Down and say that that was, that's a song about decomposition. That's a song about being buried in a natural way so that your body can actually decompose and, um, you know, rejoin the cycle of life and stuff like that. So, um, that's pretty heavy duty stuff. And so I deliberately set out to make the song as cheerful and upbeat and, and light as I could possibly make it. Well, let's get our official second song here on the table, The Silence Above Us, another mood piece. It's the first, is this the first piano tune? It's the only piano bass tune on this album, right? Yes. Yeah, first time in my life I've ever played piano on an album. And, uh, yeah, again, it's a new thing for me touring too. I've, I've never played piano in public before. I've played piano all my, well, all my life, nearly all my life. I started playing piano when I was three years old. So it was my first instrument. It came along before guitar. But I guess because there are so many like amazing pianists, concert pianists out there, I never really took my piano playing seriously. And I never thought of myself as a pianist. I th just thought of piano as a thing I could kind of do and work with as a tool and have fun with and noodle around on, but not actually perform on. But uh, Martin, my manager, who's also my touring sound engineer, he'd been saying to me for years, actually, <laughs> it takes me a long time to get around to doing things, um, to taking advice, which I'm sure is, is, is frustrating for the people who are giving the advice. But anyway, he'd been saying for years, why don't you write something on the piano? And so I finally did. And that was the silence above us. And uh, I really liked the way it came out. And I really liked the way I felt playing it on stage, somehow playing the piano and singing seems to bring out something a little bit different in my singing that, that wasn't there before. You know, it's neither better nor worse. It's just different. It feels different. And it's quite nice to do something that feels so different. So I think I'm definitely going to write more on piano as well as guitar from here on out.
the silence above us, the comfort in darkness, pale clouds in a blanket of sky, the light from my window, the trees lost in shadow, we'll likely have frost later on tonight. I'm cold, I should go back inside, where I know that it's warm if I sit I stand shivering The mist from my breathing Forms tendrils of smoke That drift lower and higher Orion, the hunter Is low in the sky The guiding star is blue I ask myself Self.
So here, again, another great instrumental intro. You know, it sounds full by itself, this riff, but yet you're able to sing without changing it at all. That it's not so busy that you have to then back off when the vocal comes in and just play the chords or play a stripped-down version. Can you say a little about, maybe since this is a, well, not newer instrument for you, but new, newer as a recording instrument, how this kind of basic riff comes together? Is it, again, just kind of messing around and then eventually something arises? <laughs> Well, funnily enough, I actually started that riff on guitar. I was messing around and noodling on the guitar and found that riff, and I really liked it. And then I'd had in the back of my mind the thing about maybe trying something on the piano. So when I wrote the riff on guitar and started trying to put the song together, I had the idea, you know, actually, that might be even nicer on the piano. And in fact, on the album, I still play a little bit bit of guitar in the background. You can hear the guitar. It's just very, it's hardly in the mix at all, but it's just there adding a little element of, of kind of a bit of twang. But obviously, I don't do that live, but it's still all there. It's really nice to be able to do. You know, that song as well came out of something I heard myself say. And it's funny, it's nothing to do with the actual subject matter of the song at all. What it was, was we got a cat a little over a year ago, and we'd always had issues with scurryings in our attic, which... I'm told a guy, oh, who was it? It was a plumber, actually, or an electrician. He said, he said, if it sounds like rats, it's probably mice. If it sounds like dogs, it's probably rats. If it sounds like elephants, I forget what. But anyway, <laughs> we'd had what sounded like rats in the attic for ages. And then once we got the cat, I suddenly noticed, and I said to my husband, I've suddenly noticed the silence above us. And I just heard myself say the silence above us, and I thought, ooh, that could be a song. Uh-huh. And and obviously, it wasn't going to be a song about the absence of rats in the attic. you know. And then I started, again, I started thinking, well, what image could I associate with the silence above us? And I started thinking about standing outside in, in the cold and, and looking up at the stars and thinking about life in the world. And that kind of moment when it's getting dark outside and... There's, well, we live way out in the country in the middle of nowhere. So there's a lot of sounds out there. People think of the country as being a quiet place. This country is an incredibly noisy place. There's always birds and animals making noise and, you know, things being killed in the distance. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, I like that and the, the kind of the rustling and it's spooky and wonderful and, and beautiful. And I guess I was trying to convey that in the song. Well, and it's interesting that the climax thematically is, what is the world coming to, which is not asked as a question. And what can we do? Like neither of those are either have a question mark in the lyrics you wrote out or are sung as questions. They are basically a lament. Whereas everything else you've been describing in the song, it it sounds pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, it is nice. And I think that was all part of my thinking. I was When I'm standing out there and I'm looking at the sky and I'm, I'm seeing wow, this is so beautiful. This is so magical and amazing and wonderful. And, and what are we doing to it? You know, 
again, it comes down to the title track. If we dig any deeper, it could get dangerous. There's there's an allusion there to fracking as well, um, which I didn't want to make too heavy, so I kept it as a very much kind of indirect illusion where I say we're drilling through the earth, building pressure all the time, splitting cracks in the rock to free the power inside. The song Slow Decay as well, you know, what are the things we leave behind? You know, as we move through the world, what are we making of it? And what are we doing? And what damage are we doing? And what good can we do? I think those are all questions that I'm trying to ask. The title itself and the overall comportment within the song makes it sound maybe spiritual, not religious. <laughs> Is that the term that's commonly used? You know, that you're talking, it seems like this could easily be, you know, a Kierkegaardian religious despair. There's silence above us. What are we doing with the world? So you're playing with the themes of this sort of traditional religious stance without having to sign on any of that. I mean, can you say a little about the sort of spirituality that's going on here, or, or is that even relevant? Well, I studied philosophy in college, and, you know, religion's always been kind of part of my life since I was raised Unitarian. And then when I moved to, well, in Ireland, there was a lovely Unitarian church there that I used to go to. But when I moved to England, there wasn't any local Unitarian Church. So I've actually go to the local Church of England, this really beautiful old 15th century church. And I don't entirely subscribe to everything that is said in there, but I like thinking about this stuff. And I guess a lot of the songs on a lot of my albums have had elements of that. Like the, there's a song I wrote for my third album, The Plum Tree and the Rose, called In Darby Cathedral, where I'm in this cathedral and I'm just thinking about so many people, so many who labored to praise their creator with towers of glasswood and stone, where I wander alone, soul, flesh, and bone, glasswood and stone, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm always thinking about this stuff, but I want I don't want to hammer people over the head with it. And I know that there are, well, my husband, for example, is completely opposed to all forms of religion. <laughs> you know? He's what they call anti-clerical. He, he, he doesn't sign up for it at all and, and reckons it does more harm than good. So, so I definitely don't want to come across as being overtly kind of religious in my songs, but these questions, you know, and these kinds of considerations are always in my head. I'm always thinking about them, so they're they're bound to be reflected in what I write. I also was was raised religious, but then more or less fell away from it or became more independent. I also was a philosophy major. When you think about, okay, I'm entering a serious mode of mind that ends up approximating the sort of contemplation that you enter, approximating something like the feeling of in church or of prayer and certainly the musical aspect, just the idea of an open cathedral, whether it be bells or this is, I guess, the feeling I'm, I'm saying that I get out of a lot of your, not just this piano song, but even your guitar work, that it's very not rock and roll and not even folk in that it's not, you know, a bunch of people sitting around a fire strumming together. It's this often very spare, open to the sky sort of sound. Oh, well, thank you. I take that as a compliment. I mean, I, I listen to all kinds of music and I, throughout a big chunk of my childhood from age seven until 13, I was a member of the Chicago Children's Choir, which was a really fantastic choir. And we used to tour all over the place. So it was a really good introduction to the kind of professional side of music. But also we did a huge variety of material from beautiful old kind of Monteverdi stuff to very modern, you know, Benjamin Britten, you know, all this, lots and lots of different kinds of music. And mostly kind of from what 
you would kind of loosely call, I guess, a classical angle, although it's not necessarily classical music as such. So that kind of musical thinking has had a huge influence on, on what, you know, what I try to do musically. And I still listen to all kinds of different music. I listen to Bach. I listen to Led Zeppelin, you know, (laughs) and I guess it all comes in there somewhere. Well, just the fact that this is in 3-4 and the way that you're constructing the basic piano riff, you know, sounds like somebody who was raised on classical and, you know, has that in your DNA somewhere. Oh, yeah, it's it's in there. All right. Definitely. Definitely. Let's get our third song out there to to connect more. It's still an original song. It's Hardwick's Lofty Towers from 2012's The Plum Tree and the Rose. But this is not only a historical story, but it's got a lot in its instrumentation and its structure, so much more overt folk influence coming into this. Can you give a, the short intro to this and then we'll play it? When I wrote this song, I was much more immersed in the whole folk scene. The Plum Tree and the Rose was my third album, and it was kind of a transition, really, in that the previous two albums, my first album was mostly trad Irish stuff and had one of my original songs on it. The second album, I Won't Go Home Till Morning, was mostly the sort of American Appalachian folk that I had learned through my mother that she was really into. She had all these albums by people like, oh, I don't know, Peggy Seeger and people like Joan Baez and so on and and Gene Ritchie. And that had two of my own songs on it, but the rest was all kind of folk. So when I made the third album, a couple of factors were coming in. One was that I'd already started making the Mama album with Zoe and was getting much more into the songwriting. But also I was really interested. I suddenly got interested in Elizabethan music, people like John Dowland and Thomas Ravenscroft. And I was visiting all these Elizabethan places. So there was kind of an Elizabethan theme to the album. The Kenilworth, obviously, is about an Elizabethan subject. And then Hardwick's Lofty Towers is about Bess of Hardwick, who was a contemporary of Queen Elizabeth I and and a friend of hers, actually. And and there's correspondence and stuff. So I visited Hardwick Hall and was fascinated by the place. And then I, I read a biography of this woman, Bess of Hardwick, who was fascinating on a lot of levels in that she was this very strong female figure in an area, in an era when there was another very strong female figure, Elizabeth I. And here's Bess of Hardwick and she's out more in the kind of commercial world. She was a really, astute businesswoman and we've got this wonderful record of correspondence to show that she actually was the one kind of making these decisions and saying well you know that particular department isn't doing so well let's franchise it out to somebody and see what they can do with it and this is doing really well so let's keep that in-house and keep trying to make it better and she's she's very directly involved in in all these different enterprises that she's operating. And meanwhile, she's having like, I don't know, I forget how many kids she had, 16 children or something like that. And she's involved with them as well in their upbringing. And she's writing letters of instruction about what kind of topics they should be taught. So it's really, she was an amazing woman, really, really strong and interesting woman. So I wanted to write a song about her. But because I'm writing about somebody who lived back in the 16th century, I wanted to give a a kind of more folk medieval feel to it. Now, also, I was still more kind of immersed in the folk world then, so I wanted to write an original song that maybe sounded a little bit more like a folk song. And I'm speaking from her point of view, you know, so I've, you know, I'm not going to go back and use absolutely 16th century language, but I'm going to say things in a slightly more old-fashioned way. The boy to whom I first was wed is the first line of the song. I mean, that's not a, that's not a line I'd write 
now speaking like myself, but I wrote it trying to get into her head. With that song, I was also, um, I also got really excited about a rhyme scheme. I, along with being really into philosophy in school, I was really into my English literature as well and poetry. And so I, I used kind of a complex rhyme scheme for that song that makes use of a lot of internal rhymes as well. And I think that kind of suits the subject matter too. To whom I first was wed Was dead within a year I cried many an angry tear In widow's weeds I pleaded for my tower I wasn't thinking then Of Hardwick's lofty towers Of Hardwick's lofty towers
So this is a little more of a full band performance than the one we just played in the silence above us. Can you say a little about how hands-off or hands-on you are about the other instrumentalists? Like This seems pretty tightly arranged, right? You've got two guitars here, two fiddles, but they're just droning for a while, and then you know it's all very carefully choreographed. Again, is this kind of just decisions that are made during the recording process, or is this part of the way that you run a band? Or do you ever run a band outside of the recording process? No, I tend to work with producers, and I tend to let the producers make most of the decisions as regards how the instrumentation is going to work. So it would have been Jerry O'Byrne produced that album and it would have been his decision to bring in Maura and have her do. Um, I think she's playing fiddle and viola on that track, if memory serves. I don't have the album in front of me, but I, I seem to recall that that's what she did. Maura Brannock, wonderful fiddle player from Ireland. And again, it's all about trying to give it an almost classical feel, an almost kind of string quartet feel, those strings on that track, which I, again, I, th- I feel like it should always suit the subject matter. You know, any instrument you bring on it, it's always got to serve the song, you know, and if it serves the song, then it's doing a good thing. But the nice thing about it is, like that song I'm actually doing, even though it's a quite an old song, um, I wrote it back in 2011, 2012, which feels like forever ago, but I'm still doing it in my live set and it still works as a solo song, but it is nice to have those other instruments on the album. And the song itself, again, it's kind of built around a really standalone guitar riff, which then you tweak a few times. So like at the end of, you know, it's, it's usually in the major key, but then it, when you do the Hardwick's Lofty Towers, am I mishearing it that you give it a little a blues, there's a blue note there? Oh yeah. Yeah, I forgot I did that on the recording. I don't do that anymore, actually. I keep it major now when I'm playing it live. Yeah, I think that was Jerry's idea. Well, A, to sort of introduce some variety and B, to emphasize the fact that there's kind of, there's ups and downs in her life. And when things go wrong, I go to the minor riff at the end. But thank you for that reminder. It's a long time since I listened to that album. and I'd actually completely forgotten that I used to do that. Was this actual Fairport Convention level research into music of this time to inspire this? Or was it just being immersed in that scene? Yeah, I was doing a fair bit of research into the music of that time because I I decided to do a cover of a John Dowland song. Mm -hmm. Um, John Dowland was this wonderful kind of tragic figure who... Uh, wrote all these beautiful songs for the lute, and um, but he was always trying to get himself accepted as a court musician at the court of Queen Elizabeth I. And he was there's this again, there's all these letters, these pathetic letters that he kept writing, saying, "Have you know? Can I come and play for you?" And I I think the Queen would really like my music if I could just get a bit of an audience and come in and play a few songs. And this is back in the late 1500s. And in his writing, you can relate to it. You know, you can just see the kind of aspiring musicians trying to get people to listen to their demos. You know, it yeah. really feels like that. So I discovered John Dowland and I discovered Thomas Ravenscroft, who wrote this wonderful uh, vocal piece. He wrote all these these things called rounds or catches. And I actually wrote a, a round to go in at the end of In Darby Cathedral as well, because that was kind of influenced by the Ravenscroft stuff. I was just kind of exploring these different musical forms, not necessarily deliberately trying to work them into that song. But one thing I was doing on that song that I saw John Dowland doing is John Dowland would be doing one thing on the lute. He'd have a melody line going on the lute, but then he'd be singing something over it 
that was quite different. So it was kind of like a duet for voice and lute. So I was trying to do that with the guitar and have, have the song and quite a few of the songs that I've written since. I, I always try and think of it as a duet for guitar and voice, not necessarily the guitar just backing the voice, but the guitar having equal billing with the voice and kind of doing its own thing and having the, these two melodic lines kind of intersecting in interesting ways. I think it's just something that excites me to try and do. Well, yeah, and this has, again, even though you said on your, your older albums, you've got longer songs, this one is, again, pretty compact, and that's because it, I think, has this folk song structure that it's not so much, even though it's got a nice standalone riff, it's not the kind of standalone riff that you would sit and play for five minutes straight, right? It's, it's just a, a faster, you know, even getting into and out of the solo, it sounds like, like you chop off a measure, what it is is the start of it gets kind of cut off because I'm singing over the top of it. Again, uh, if, uh, that's if it's on the album the same way I'm doing it live. But I just basically play the whole song through as as the instrumental. But over the first bit of the instrumental, I'm kind of still singing that like the Hardwick's lofty towers. And while I'm singing the towers, I'm already going into the you know. So it maybe doesn't feel as long because I'm I'm singing over part of it. It sounds like the song three minutes in, like it's just done. You've done your little riff and it stops. We're back to the fiddles droning, but then you have this one extra couple of lines that are, is it just a different tempo or is it an actual different time signature that you're getting into there? Yeah, it's a different tempo. It's probably a different, uh, is it, is it a different time signature? I think it's still basically. It almost goes into free time there, doesn't it? That I have carved my name in golden letters. So, so yeah. And then the guitar is playing unison with the vocal on that. So all through the song, the guitar has been doing its own little counter melody almost to the vocal melody. And then for that last little kind of coda at the end, the guitar and the vocal are in unison, which I wanted to sum it all up with this thing of the fact that the, what inspired the song is I saw these initials on top of the building, on top of Hardwick Hall, and all around the roof line of the castle, you can see the initials ES, 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 and that's for Elizabeth Countess of Shrewsbury. And she was so concerned, basically, to make sure that everybody knew she had built this castle that she stuck her initials on top. And that was part of what made me want to write about her. And then I, I read the biography of her and so on. But I had the line in my head, I've, I've carved my name in golden letters in the sky so that those who follow after me will know that I have born and died, that I was born and died. And, and again, I guess it's part of what I'm thinking of on the new album with Slow Decay, you know, what do we leave behind? How do we make our mark passing through the world? And are people going to remember us? And, and will there even be anybody to remember us? It's, it's all, it's just all questions that occupy me all the time. That main guitar riff then is kind of like the signature, which is why you would do it exactly the same, you know, at the very end of the song as you did when it sounded like the song was ending at three minutes in. You know, it's only 30 seconds ago. I could very easily hear, we'll know that I was born and died. And instead of just doing the same riff, like add a little, you know, just something to extend it out to give it a little extra. But no, that's the signature. And in fact, then doing it in a minor way, I can see why you then would gravitate toward not doing that in the performance because you're violating the signature. You're doing it by making that, giving it a minor, putting in a blue note there. You're, it's sort of violating the, the rule of the, at least the way it ends, where that is the, that riff is the signature. Yeah, the light motif, as it were. Yes. As, say, as Wagner would say. Uh, well, let's uh, just introduce our last song here. So from Walking Into White 2015, 
Yellowstone, quite a different approach. You're not even playing guitar on this. Yeah, I do play it live now. I had to actually learn the guitar part. What happened with that song was that I'd written a guitar part for the song. I wrote the song with a guitar part, but it was very heavy. And Adam, my cousin, had the idea of, of bringing in this wonderful classical guitarist, Dan LaPelle, and have him do this, this almost kind of South American kind of bossa nova kind of thing. You know, that it's like that Gilberto Getz thing, you know, um, the girlfriend in Panama kind of, kind of style, you know. Dan put his guitar on initially kind of as an overdub. And then Adam being Adam listening over said, you know what? We don't need Sarah's guitar on this. Let's ditch Sarah's guitar and just have Dan on there. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you have to leave your ego at the door <laughs> when you're very directly killed your darling there. Yeah, exactly. Kill your darlings. Kill your darlings. So I killed that darling. We, we ditched my guitar. But then, of course, I wanted to be able to perform the song live. So I actually had to sit with the CD after um, the album was recorded and, and learn the guitar part that Dan is, is playing on that album. And which uh, you can go on YouTube if you like. And there's a video of my playing, uh, Yellowstone live at a, at a venue in, in London. You know, I don't rep- reproduce, I can't reproduce note for note what Dan is doing on that, but I've I've got that kind of South American jazz thing going on and, and it's really nice. So I'm I'm very glad that Adam did what he did and, and, and got Dan in for that. The funny thing was I'd I'd recorded the vocals and once we got rid of my guitar and once Dan had done his kind of jazzy, very kind of delicate kind of up-tempo guitar part, I had to go back in and re-record the vocal and give the song an entirely different feeling because my original vocal had been quite quite heavy, you know, but I had to go back and do it again and, and just revisit the entire song. And, and I'm, I'm really glad I did. And it's a case of how a, a song can, in the recording process, just be completely transformed. All right, here's Yellowstone. Thank you so much, Sarah, for doing this. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been really nice talking to you.
Thanks so much to Sarah. Really interesting combination of influences, styles there. You can find out more about her at sarahmcquade.com. My next interview will be with David J. of Bauhaus, Love and Rockets, and Solo Fame. That is a very good one. Go subscribe if you have not already at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I could really use your help publicizing this podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and share the posts there with your friends. Go to the iTunes store or wherever you listen to this podcast. Leave a nice rating or review. Feel free to contact me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com if you've got comments or guest suggestions. And if you like this, I could really use your direct support at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.